If you have something to give to us, you can give it to the clerk or a member of the county staff. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Let me share what I just served. I just served a non-negotiable notice of complaint. This non-negotiable notice of complaint is being filed today, Tuesday, September the 1st, 2020, at the Board of County Commissioners meeting in Palm Beach County, Florida. The non-negotiable notice of compliant complaint is to inform the Palm Beach County Mayor, Dave Kerner, Vice Mayor, Robert S. Weinroth, Palm Beach County Commissioners, Melissa McKinley, Greg K. Weiss, Matt Bernard, Mary Lou Berger, and Hal R. Valdeshay, and the Palm Beach County Administrator, Verdina C. Baker, of the following violations. You are all under violation and operating outside of your oaths of office, and both the Florida State and the U.S. Constitution. You are all acting outside of the authority of your office and do not have the governing authority to shut down Palm Beach County and mandate anything. You are all in violation of Florida State and federal constitutional law. You are all in violation of the people at large unenable rights. You are all in violation of the following codes. 18 U.S. Code 241, 18 U.S. Code 242, 18 Code U.S. 245, 18 U.S. Code uh, 1962, 18 U.S. Code 1031, 18 U.S. Code 1038 and 18 U.S. Code 1341 and 42 to prevent a wrong from being done. You have not done that. And 18 U.S. Code 1621, citing the neglect to protect by individual under oath. 16 American Jurisprudence 24, Section 98, while an emergency cannot create power and no emergency justifies the violation of our, of the provision of the United States Constitution of the United States of America. No emergency has just cause to suppress the Constitution or the people at large unenable rights. From the 16th American Jurisprudence Section Edition, Section 177, the general misconception that any statute passed by legislators bearing the appearance of law constitutes the law of the land. The U.S. Constitution is a supreme law of the land and any statute to be valid must be in agreement. It is impossible for both the Constitution and law violating it to be valid. One must prevail. Any court government or uh, government officer who acts in violation of, in opposition of, or contradiction of the foregoing by his or her own actions commits treason and includes the self-executing section 3 of 18 of 14 amendment and vacates his or her office. Ma'am, your time has expired. We I would say the comments. last thing, that you have been served and what that is in violation and your bonds will be pulled if you do not comply within 10 days. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. That was a fun one. I hope you liked it. You are listening to Starseeds Angels Savant Syndrome and the Mystic Man here, right here for you day. Now I'm going to make a promise to you. Because I'm going to put in a lot of work right now. And you're going to be able to reap the benefit of it. My gift to you, yes. Do ask for this one favor. Your attention. I promise you that if you get through this with me, not only will it be entertaining, but it will cure you of any fear that you have in the present moment about the current events. I can't promise that you won't get new fears, of course, that's all you, but since I do understand the dynamics socially that are being implemented or I should say imposed 
I do know that by curing the ailment that is the head of the beast, in other words, stomping and crushing its skull, instead of swapping at its tail, we do stand a good chance of attaining courage. I don't mind doing it, but I do ask for your attention in it. You see, you only fear what you don't understand, and I promise you, after this, you will have understanding. I'm reading a document that I came across earlier this year. When I first started researching all of this stuff from the science of viruses to the history to the media and their history which led me to the CIA website which is where this is hosted on a document, a declassified PDF and I do suggest that you check it out read along with me It's called Covert Action Information Bulletin, The CIA and the Media, 40 pages. Don't worry, I'm a smooth reader. And it's full of very, very pertinent information that I think will help paint a picture for you. The document was approved for release 2010. CIA RDP90 00845R 00100180003 5. I see document name. And this is going to be a big one. You want to take a break? Let's take a break. Let's, we'll give you a break. And then we'll jump into it. We'll put on some music, right? How about that? I know I just kind of slammed this on the table for you, but uh, maybe go grab a friend. Share this. Everybody should know the information in this document. There's many more, too. And it's your right to know. The Freedom of Information Act was made in a place for a reason. A very important reason. It's our responsibility to know this information. It's our responsibility to learn and understand this information. And it's our responsibility to measure and weigh this information. And this information is about the history of disinformation. From the CIA, FBI, and our mainstream media. Thanks for tuning in.
you're listening to Sass. This is The Mystic Man here. The podcast, Starseeds, Angels, Savant Syndrome. And I'm reading to you now a document hosted on the CIA website called Covert Action Information Bulletin, the CIA and the media. This was approved for release in 20... The Editorial Three years have passed since we last devoted an issue to the ties between the media and the intelligence complex. The need for such scrutiny now, we believe, is greater than ever, and this entire special issue deals with the subject. As the U.S. government sinks deeper into an ideological morass, the watchdog role of the press becomes that much more important. Yet we see complacency rather than skepticism. The country is being run by people who lie unashamedly, yet most of the media wag their tails and accept everything. Cabinet officers who assert their Grenada is a threat to the national security of the United States. Should be laughed at of the podium. Senior military and the CIA officials who fear an imminent invasion from the People's Republic of Mexico should be retired. Yet it seems that the administration can say almost anything and be taken seriously by a large segment of the fourth estate. We do not demean the efforts of the excellent investigative journalists of both the print and electronic media who have helped to expose some of the more outrageous abuses of the government, especially the illegal war against Nicaragua. Indeed, it is amazing considering the way the deck is stacked against them that they can expose anything. Truly, the administration holds almost all the cards. They can manipulate through selective background briefings and and orchestrated leaks in a way that very few honest journalists can combat. Most people in the media have not spoken out. When the present government seems hell-bent on pouring many millions into the coffers of every fascist dictator in the world, on arming and financing regimes responsible for torture, disappearances, and thousands of deaths, on flagrantly breaking both U.S. and international law as a matter of course, the media must be intensely critical, not insufferably fawning. When someone lies outrageously, you have to say so, whether the speaker is the president or a famous foreign correspondent. Many journalists who accept every foolish bureaucratic utterance should know better. Some, unfortunately, do know better. Some unwittingly spread administration disinformation. Some create it. In this special issue of CAIB, we study the complex problem of disinformation from a number of perspectives. We include a comprehensive historical overview by William Preston and Ellen Ray and several current examples. This is, mind you, uh, this is talking about current at the time when this is written, which I believe was uh, in the, in the... I believe it was 81. We'll get to that. We are especially pleased to present the devastating analysts, or, uh, sorry, excuse me, analysis by Edward Herman and Frank Broadhead of the plot to kill the Pope, exposing in meticulous detail a major current disinformation operation, current, mind you, to back then, we also review the new book yeah, new, by George, Georgie Ann Geyer, a leading disinformationalist, and we dissect the media operation which the Reagan administration is mounting against Grenada. We present, after a long absence from these pages, Philip 
Aji's detective work, which led to the exposure of a CIA wolf in journalists' clothing. And we conclude with the new notes and Ken Lawrence's sources and methods column, all devoted to the media and intelligence operations. We hope that journalists are vigilant in rejecting the pressures to spread disinformation. We hope that our readers will be relentless in exposing it. Well, uh, got me in. I'm going to skip some of these headers. So let's start. Disinformation and Mass Deception. Democracy as a Cover Story by William Preston Jr. and Ellen Ray. During World War I, the atrocity story came into its own as an instrument of foreign policy. In those simpler days, governments could turn public opinion against the enemy with tales of individual brutality, the rape of a nun, the bayoneting of a baby, or the execution of a Red Cross nurse. Such propaganda externalized the issues and focused national attention on an appropriate scapegoat. Doubters or dissenters were swept aside in the patriotic fallout in an emotional downpour that insisted, quote, once at war, to reason is treason, end quote. This crude propaganda, however, had a temporary war-related quality which often foundered on its own exaggerations. The idea of truth in those days had not yet been obliterated by the continuous covert manipulation of an information in peacetime, just as in war, nor had deception, secrecy, and lying come to be so much a part of the national menu as to be swallowed whole like the junk food that satiates the public appetite. Today, there is no better example of the corrupted circumstances that now confront the consumer of news than the undercover campaign of official disinformation about Cuba. Having failed to restore its hegemony over Cuba in the Bay of Pigs invasion or in the long secret war waged under the codename Operation Mongoose, the United States Central Intelligence Agency recently stepped up its 20-year psychological warfare operations to discredit and destroy the Cuban government and any other Latin American or Caribbean government which stands in ideological unity with them. Propaganda aimed at that small struggling country internationally manipulates emotions of horror, revulsion, and fear in the uninformed citizen of the Yankee Colossus. Cuba is falsely pictured by the U.S. as embracing in its foreign policy the contemporary apocalyptic trio drugs, criminality, and terrorism. A far more terrible spectacle than the individual bloodletting of the World War I propaganda. Images of corrupted American youth, gangsterism, and revolutionary violence sent from Cuba wrote Latin America, our daily media fare for the American public. Sound familiar? Cuba as a scapegoat and Fidel Castro as the implicable enemy of world national security interests have become easy answers for the complex realities of hemispheric change and the sophisticated techniques with which official information about Cuba is concealed, denied, Created, regulated, shaped, and planted seem to have heightened public acceptance of the big lie. With a shootout at credibility gap might not rescue <coughs> excuse me. While a shootout at credibility gap might not rescue the truth about Cuba from the hands of its abductors. A historical perspective of official U.S. deception operations against its own people might at least inoculate some against further ravages of this advancing affliction. Wow, these guys are smart. Writers used to be real genius, huh? I can barely understand. <laughs> no, I got it. I'm following along. I'm just um, uh, being humble. 
I hope you're carrying along too. Basically, they're talking about Cuba, you know, the propaganda back then, and um, CIA, you, you know, you just apply it to what's going on right now, and I'm sure it's uh, you'll follow right around. The Overt Era of Information Abuse, 1898 to 1945. So here's a historical account, I see. <clears throat> no one with any knowledge of governments would ever insist there was a utopian past. Governments have always monitored dissent to impose their version of events on the public consciousness, to control the circulation of hostile opinion, and to manage the news. Secrecy always had a place, as had executive privilege. But the First Amendment guarantees, as well as the separation and checking of powers, seemed designed to limit the U.S. government's inherent tendency to manipulate information for its own interest. But as we shall see, this is not the case. During and after the Civil War, while not engaged, engaging in deliberate deception, government nevertheless insisted on, quote, codes of press behavior, end quote, the same which we criticize, UNESCO, that's U-N-E-S-C-O, and third world nations for daring to put forth in the new international information order. That's all in brackets. And could classify information as too poisonous to circulate if judged incendiary. Uh, in quote, uh, in quotations, seditious, treasonable, immoral, indecent, or obscene. End quote. The buildup of the North American Empire then added a new dimension of danger for information. During the Spanish-American War, the brutal military mop-up against the rebels in the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Cuba involved secret planning, undercover operations, and premeditated cover-ups in the face of public and congressional opposition. It was the First World War, however, that led the U.S. to move beyond censorship and overt suppression into the heady realm of disinformation itself. In April 1917, President Woodrow Wilson authorized the Committee on Public Information, headed by George Creel, to take an active part in disseminating and propagandizing an official point of view. To unite public opinion behind the war, Creel's CPI conducted a, quote, a fight for the mind of mankind, end quote, fake intelligence suggesting that German spies were everywhere generated waves of he hatred and hysteria against the, quote, barbaric Huns, end quote, in disinformation coups, re reminiscent of today. The State Department used selective information to prove Germany was funding American pacifist organizations. The capacity for covert conduct also gained ground as U.S. military intelligence expanded its role in domestic surveillance, laying plans in 1920 for a secret domestic counterintelligence program aimed at radicals, an authentic progenitor of the Cointelpro operations of the later Hoover years. Anticipating the CIA mania for cover, U.S. intelligence also dispatched agents to Europe as members of the International Red Cross, by the end of the war, the country had acquired an institutionalized intelligence system, initiated the classification of sensitive information, and bitten into the apple of deception. The Committee for Public Information left a legacy of experience for later generations of disinformationists to apply, if not duplicate. Public relations is born as disinformation. During two subsequent decades of peace in which the trauma of an economic collapse followed the delirium of a perilous prosperity, a subtle yet significant development shaped the future of information, the rise of public relations and, in, and its professional advocates. 
exemplified by Edward Bernays, a man who began his career as consultant to the U.S. delegations of the Versailles Peace Conference, which terminated World War I and ended it as a hired hand for United Fruit Company in Latin America. Public relations and its covert marketing strategies quickly seeped into the very core of American life. As Bernays cynically stated in a PR manual in 1928, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. It is the intelligent minorities which need to be which need to make use of propaganda continuously and systematically. End quote. That doesn't say it all right there. Alright. Moving on. The New Deal 30s witnessed further assaults on the integrity of information. In the U.S., the realities of the Depression inspired a militant labor union campaign for the recognition and power, one in which the communists participated as allies. The conservative reaction to his movement was vicious, projecting an image of it as the secret red subversion of U.S. society, a mindless image which haunts the public consciousness even today. Imagine threats from front organizations and fifth columns brought further waves of tainted information. Thus, the stage was set for the massive escalation of mistrust in any information not certified pure by the U.S. government. Since it could have the field to itself, all competitors were labeled un-American. What the government would do with this power was not yet clear, but its existence and potential for abuse could not be denied. An incredible opportunity for any proponent of the Bernays School of Manipulation. Other trends in the years immediately preceding Pearl Harbor accelerated the information counter-revolution. The growth of classification expanded the domain of U.S. secrecy and the ability of government officials to conceal or selectively leak information on behalf of their own political agendas. Loyalty oaths and secret security checks came into being designed to eliminate disclosure of the same material. Subversive activities, end quote, and espionage, meanwhile, became top priorities for the U.S. government, justifying generalized surveillance of a population considered suspect. Covert intelligence activity would soon come to serve the information management of successive U.S. administrations. World War II and the New Disinformation on the eve of its second crusade to save the world, the U.S. was also poised on the brink of a new information era. How secret its policies would become, to what extent it would adopt the techniques of deception, and how each of these would affect democratic decision-making began to emerge as the war progressed. These questions were eliminated, or excuse me, illuminated. In the dramatic struggle for power which occurred between the Office of War Information, essentially a civilian organization charged with the mission of promotion and understanding of the war to the world at large, and the Office of Strategic Services, OSS. The wartime, excuse me, <clears throat> the wartime predecessor of today's CIA. These two agencies had irreconcilable differences over the nature and purposes of propaganda. The OSS victory in this struggle would foreshadow the growth of an Orwellian Ministry of Truth to be used as a covert instrument of Cold War policies against a new enemy, the Soviet Union. But all that came later. Elmer Davis OWI director and ex-newsman began World War II believing his agency should deal in facts.
Right. Here we go. Where was I? I oh, will just go. Elmer Davis, OWI director and ex-newsman, began World War II believing his agency should deal in facts, not opinion, disseminating truths to, fr to friend and enemy alike, something the BBC's wartime broadcasts were attempting to accomplish. But neither President Roosevelt nor the Army, Navy, and State Departments believed that the public had a right to know what was really going on. And uh, right, it's documents recently obtained under the Freedom of Information Act even suggest U.S. foreknowledge of Pearl Harbor. End of bracket. In any case, the war-related bureaucracy remained adamant about sharing information with the OWI, seriously undermining its mission. Colonel William J. Donovan, head of the OSS, on the other hand, had an adventurer's enthusiasm for the secret operations, dirty tricks, and disinformation of the crudest sort. Psychologically war or sorry, um, psychological warfare dominated the OSS approach to the war. Though neither its costs nor its benefits to the American people were ev evaluated nor was truth considered a weapon of any potential. Psychological warfare thus sold itself to the high command and the OWI was forced to adopt the methods of its competitor, subordinating all information projects to the expedient of winning the war. Interestingly, it was hardly this capitulation which influenced the course of the war since the same methods of manipulation were carried to the extreme by the enemy, the Goebbels approach to the information. I've never heard that term. I must be, um, I must come from under a rock. By the time the hostilities ended, the OWI had become a converted exponent of American power. Its liberal one-world ideology long since subordinated to the commitment of U.S. involvement in every region of the world. Nowhere, their propaganda now claimed, could the U.S. renounce its moral and ideological interests as a powerful and righteous nation. In the OSS, similar readjustments of priorities took place where once psychological warfare had at least been balanced by careful intelligence analysis to secure and interpret information, covert operations with their deceptive components of subverting and transforming facts became the new intelligence obsession. In sum, a watershed had been reached. Information thereafter became Bernie's reality, an unseen mechanism quote-unquote, by which intelligence minorities, quote-unquote, shaped the operations of the masses by deceiving them. Let me say that all the way through. Information thereafter became Barney's reality, an unseen mechanism by which intelligence minorities shaped the opinions of the masses by deceiving them. Just like now. And just like he's saying is happening then in his time where he's writing it. He and she, sorry, this is a two-part authorship. The intelligence era, information goes underground. During the controversy surrounding publications of the Pentagon Papers in 1971, Leslie Gelb, in charge of uh, producing that vol voluminous and revealing report for the New York Times, commented on the continuing Cold War dedication to the philosophy of Bernays. Quoting, most of our elected and appointed leaders in the national security establishment, he confirmed, felt they had the right and beyond the obligation to manipulate the American public in a national interest as they defined it. End quote. 
The same notion in abbreviated form slipped out in an exchange between Defense Secretary McNamara's press spokesman and a group of reporters in 1962. And it goes like this, quote, It's inherent in the government's right, if necessary, to lie, to save itself. The aide argued, and the, end quote, yeah. the right to manipulate and the right to lie have had other post-war companions. The right to plausibly deny, the right to co a cover story, the right to conceal, and the need to know, and a standard of classification that created another right, that of privileged access, with its stepchild, the right to selectively leak. <laughs> in analyze, I'm sorry, in analyzing the period since the atom bombs leveled the Japanese will to resist. It is as if the intelligence agencies had not yet heard that the war was over and are still hiding in caves on some Washington atoll. Yet the patterns which have unfolded are a logical outcome of the wartime experience, beginning with the failure to reorganize, control, or totally dismantle the secret coercive machinery which was created for that war. Quite the contrary. Stopping the international communism provided the rationale for the even broader mandate for worldwide conquest, the neo-colonialism and imperialism of the new empire. And to help in those operations, the U.S. intelligence agencies had no qualms about enlisting the support of their former enemies, the Galen Intelligence Network of Nazi Germany. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Excuse me if I didn't. Documents of the early proposals to set up the Central Intelligence Unit, the present CIA, give a flavor of the crisis atmosphere with which they viewed the future struggle against the Soviet Union. Quote, the task of detecting any developments which threaten the security of the world, end quote. And another quote, to create a system in which every U.S. citizen who travels abroad is a source of political intelligence. In another quote, maintaining a constant check on foreign intelligence and propaganda, including propagandized U.S. citizens. And, quote, keep informed on political trends inside the U.S. because, these, because state legislators are peculiarly vulnerable to outside influences and would be a logical objective of foreign intelligence services." End quote. It is a small wonder that the CIA's fears became self-fulfilling prophecies. Early CIA post-war victories over communism, such as the Italian elections of 1948, bought and paid for unwittingly by the American people brought about unholy alliances as distasteful as those the intelligence agencies had made with the war criminals, dealings with the mafia and the attendant corruption which comes with sharing dirty secret, uh, dirty secret with thugs, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, comes with sharing a dirty secret with thugs. Sorry, it's, uh, this thing is old, it's a document that's got like, uh, bleeding ink, you know, <laughs> This was a photocopied uh, document that's hosted. So, yeah, it's it's super, like, um, like totally, like, spy-like reading a document style. It's on the CIA website. You should check it out. I'm serious. Look it up. It's your right to look it up, and it's your right to read it. Freedom of Information Act. All right. Later, the Korean War produced an equally important impact on the spy operations. I'm um, sorry, operatives' own psychological outlook. Korea revived the atmosphere of total war and created an anything goes philosophy directed against the enemy. It, it meant, as General Maxwell Taylor argued in 1961 with reference to Fidel Castro, there would be a policy of no long term living with dangerously effective exponents of communism and anti-Americanism, end quote. Iran in 1953, Guatemala 1954, 
1954 to 1973, Brazil 1962, Indonesia 1965, and Chile 1973 were among the targets of covert operations encouraged by this philosophy. But the strangest outcome of all in this web of deceit and disinformation was its coming home to roost. The intelligence establishment actually began to eat its own vomit. False propaganda fed into the foreign outlets came to be reported back to the U.S. and the government began to make policy decisions based on its own lies. U.S. US Disinformation Today In spite of the long history of U.S. government propaganda, disinformation, and lying, each succeeding administration insists it is clean, inventing alternative sources on whom to place the blame for the corruption of communications and dialogue. None of them wants the public to find the pee under the shell in this age-old con game. President Reagan has naturally accused the Soviets of introducing the practice. The State Department has fostered the myth that disinformation is a Russian word. Desinformasiva, according to one of their busy little defectors, Ladislav Bitman, is the province of Directorate A of the KGB. Bitman, a Czech, was left who left his country well over 10 years ago. This was 10 years from that point in time, mind you. Only recently began making these widely reported pronouncements about disinformation. The Akhara darling of the right-wing press. He conveniently confirms their suspicions about Soviet global intentions, while Reagan warns television audiences about Soviet-style runways and Cuban-style army bracks. The danger is that through incessant repetition of the word, disinformation has become synonymous in the minds of the American public with Soviet intelligence operations. Historical facts, however, point to quite another conclusion. As the preceding sections have indicated, Disinformation has clearly been part of the U.S. intelligence, military, and Cold War offensive waged in the peacetime since the end of the World War II, an integral part of national security which has no clear relationship to truth or the beliefs of its practitioners. And as the activists of U.S. foreign policy, the CIA is its chief author. Why don't we take a break? I bet you are needing one. Me too. All of this disinformation information that's really factually based because it's the unveiling the information of the disinformation mission is really bugging me down. I need to take a breather even though I've been breathing this whole time. So I will pause and I'll play the track for you and for me and for your country and our country and whatever country, anybody's country, whatever. Humanity, baby. That's what's up. <laughs> 